0: This just tells you how dumb short-term predictions are for anyone, even if you trust my nonsense over here. When I go on the record and say, I guarantee this stock's going down, I didn't assign a time to it, and it goes up 25% in the next week, that's Skippy has some egg on his face here.
1: <laughs> this podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Douglas, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I can't believe we're making it happen here. The plan was to take the week off, but Skippy couldn't couldn't hold back.
0: I just had to say hi. I mean, if you go back to our early, early episodes. Dougal's goes on about this is a couple of friends who like investing and happen to be successful investors that like to pick each other's brains, man. <laughs>
1: where are you at? Tell the people where you at.
0: Well, I can't reveal too much. I'm in Europe, in an alley uh, at one of my favorite pubs in the world, talking to the oh. people, talking to Douglas.
1: <laughs> I love it, man. I'm I'm glad we uh we we got we got to chat. I'm glad we got to chat. Your dedication knows no bounds. I'll tell you that much.
0: There's some, re- there's some real live reporting that has to happen over here. That will happen later in the episode. But I got inflation report, um, construction report, Ooh. all this good stuff. Oh, right? my goodness.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. Then you had to. this. is an emergency pod. I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think where we probably have to start is continuing the conversation we started last week around Vidya. Because, I mean, it, you, you spit on it. Because I would not have guessed that what happened this week was about to happen.
0: First of all, we have to clear up Dougal's lame joke there because he Dougal's is always doing jokes from two years ago. When he <laughs> says Nvidia, it's, it's some crazy Ross Gerber. Who is this guy? Some crazy I can't guy I can't that remember. went on yelling about Wait, we, We're talking about NVIDIA here. NVIDIA, a stock last week that was trading at 28 t- times press to sales. And this week, I think it's at 35. Dougal's, I went in, remember we talked about I went on the record and said this stock is going down. Well, not only did that not happen, it went up eighty bucks a share from three hundred to three eighty. And I knew earnings was coming out this week. I was pretty fired up that maybe if they had a solid earnings, I might be able to economically take a bet against the stock. Well, hmm. the stock went up more than my wildest dreams, like a twenty five percent gain <laughs> midweek. I'm still not able to get in to bet against this thing as much as I would like to. Oh. And If you don't listen to the show much, you should never do that. It's a dumb idea. But we're playing around with some ideas here for fun.
1: I mean, it's like it's so out of control. It's so freaking out of control. As you were just saying last week, you were saying the stock is so wildly expensive. And by the way, when you said the stock's going down, you didn't say the stock's going down in the next week. That's not the kind of games you play.
0: You're saying Uh, that. No, 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 long term. But at the same point, Douglas, when I go on the record, this just tells you how dumb short term predictions are for anyone. Even if you trust my nonsense over here, when I go on the record and say, I guarantee this stock's going down, I didn't assign a time to it, and it goes up 25% in the next week, that's, Skippy has some egg on his face here.
1: <laughs> do you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the record and say, do you know what the number one sign that something is in a bubble is? I don't. When I read like no fewer than, I think, 10 articles this week that said that NVIDIA was not in a bubble. That's the number one sign. There were so many articles that would it would start off by something like Nvidia's out of control, but it's not a bubble, right? So they when you have to state that something is not a bubble, God help me it's a bubble. I tell you that. Oh much right man. Now.
0: Yeah, we talked about the comparisons to Cisco in ninety-nine uh, yes. last week. Yes. And you pulled up the article that said like Cisco is the one stock you have to own, even though it's the most expensive stock in the world. There people are writing the same articles with Nvidia right now
1: there was a there was this wall street journal piece that i read about is the ai hype overall but mostly was talking about nvidia and as i kept getting deeper into the thing it was saying that people should feel reassured because um even though the rally is concentrated which we're going to talk a little bit more about the s&p 500 and its concentration right now even though the rally is concentrated it's mostly concentrated in quote unquote established blue chip stocks so we're good i what? Like I was kind of like it's kind of like what? And then it went on. I actually wrote this quote down because I thought this was genius. It says, What you're getting with these stocks is pristine balance sheets, stable earnings growth, mostly reasonable valuations, and you have an AI kicker.
0: No, yeah, what you're getting with these stocks is a whole bunch of garbage because their valuations have run away. No one said Cisco in 1999 was a bad business. It was a bad stock to own. That's what you're getting with some of this other garbage.
1: There was this other quote that I thought was great in there that said, um, there's simply not enough, and you say versions of this before, there simply is not enough market cap available to support the buying mania for artificial intelligence. Now, technically. I love love that quote. Yeah, it's so good. Because technically, like market cap is infinite. And when you start running, like the multiples you go like at a certain point something's got to give because the u.s can't be a hundred percent of the global market cap you know as we talked about before oh it's it's phenomenal i'm loving it I'm hey loving it.
0: listen market cap is only infinite if we have uh certain political leaders in power uh just mm. printing money like crazy
1: yeah <laughs> that's it's a true story it's a true story can we talk- uh,
0: yeah go ahead
1: oh, i was gonna say can we talk about some of the s p 500 concentration
0: we need to. This is part of the NVIDIA story in a way.
1: Yeah. I So I was running some numbers because you, you sent me over this tweet, which I really enjoyed uh, the chart that was saying that the top seven, or maybe not the top, but seven of the top performers this year. So NVIDIA, Tesla, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, Google if you look at their returns, something like 44%, I think is what the chart said. And if you look at the other 493 stocks in the S&P 500, up 1%. So I just went, I got to back this up. I got to back this chart up. So of course, I started pulling I started pulling digits. I was looking at numbers this morning. And if I took the top 10 stocks, I did. So I pulled year-to-date return, their, uh, their starting weight at the beginning of the year. So I could get a sense for like, what's the weighted return? If I pulled the top ten, which are basically those stocks that I named uh, plus a couple others, we're we're looking at a very positive return. If I pull the rest, we're down. I think it was three percent. Let me just check this. I'm going to run this right back, right quick. Hold on. Let me tell top ten. If I pull these out,
0: well, while yeah. you're doing that, let me give a caveat. So if you don't know how most S and P 500 funds work, this might be a surprise to you because basically we're going to tell you that. 10 stocks out of 500 really, really matter. That's because uh, most of those index funds are gonna be market cap weighted, which means the biggest companies, the companies like Apple, which has a $2.7 trillion uh, market cap, hold the large majority of that index. So you can get to the point, I don't know these numbers off the top of my head, Diggles, but where like 10 stocks control a significant portion of the market. And it just happens that year-to-date 2023, those largest stocks are also the best performing stocks. And so yes. they're really skewing the index.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, and the numbers yeah. I'm about to spout, I mean, these are numbers I ran this morning, so they're not going to be exactly right, but just take it directionally, similar to the, the 493 thing we were talking about. So what I'm looking at right now is the top 10 stocks were about 11%, 11% is the return they provided. The overall S&P 500 so far this year is about 10%. So that means you've, the rest of the stocks have lost 1% in aggregate. It is, it's fascinating. And I'm just talking about the the weightings here too. So Apple and Microsoft are the top two weightings of the S&P 500. So those are the largest percentage of the market cap of the S&P 500. And between the two of them, you're talking about 14% of the index, the value of the overall value of the index, 14% of them rest in those two stocks.
0: It's too much. Like, so um, again, to tie it back, if, maybe you're not falling by now. What that means is if you're not a fan of Apple and you are just an index fund investor, like a Bogle head, say you don't want to invest in Apple or Microsoft. If you invest in Spy, 14% of your money is in Apple and Microsoft. Like it's so huge. And uh, for the last decade, really, those stocks have performed so well. That they protected you from that. No one's going to complain about owning those stocks in the past decade, but they can't last forever because the market cap of those things is absolutely crazy. Yeah,
1: it reminds me of a couple years ago when I wanted to invest in uh, emerging markets. So I bought an emerging market fund, or I was looking at buying an emerging market fund, buying it. But when I looked at the breakdown of it, it was something like 35% of the index was China. And so I had to buy other. Uh, like country specific emerging markets funds because I went, I'm effectively just buying China here, which like, I'm good with that, but I did buy like some more India, some more Korea just to try and, you know, get the, get the thing balanced. It is, Ooh, it's really fascinating. I think I think it's super fascinating. And I was looking, there was this chart that um I can never pronounce this right, but I think his name's Charlie Blello. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yep. Put it, put out. And it was looking at, it was, over the last, I think 20 or maybe 30 years, I think it might have been 30 years, it was looking at the, what was the number one, like the percent makeup of the s 500 for the the top stock, like over that period of time. And Apple is the highest of all, of all time, according to the data, right, that Charlie had. Um, it was the most concentrated. But you had something like in the early 90s, I mean, the highest, uh, the number one stock had something like, like two or 3% of the index. So it was less than half of what Apple is right now. We're concentrated, people. It's going to be a fun ride.
0: Well, and that's the, um, if you way overthink it like me and you do, and uh, you've been on the index fund kick, well, if you go, we know U.S. stocks are expensive. That's not a great thing. And then if you're not bullish on Apple and Microsoft, it gets really hard to be excited about buying the S&P 500 because it's effectively everything that's expensive. I mean, sure, no, some of the stocks, from four hundred to five hundred might be cheap, but they're like point zero one percent of the index. They don't <laughs> exactly. matter for your returns at all.
1: Exactly. Oh, ooh. yeah, loving it. It's it's concentrated. It's gonna be an interesting ride. What else you want to talk about?
0: Uh, quick inflation report from the other side of the pond here.
1: Okay, um, kick it off. Food is cheap, like cheap. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I mean
0: foot foot long subway six euro, like six fifty, I think. I mean. Back mm-hmm. in the homeland, it's, it's running north of 10 bucks for me. So even you remember the you $5 foot rate, long?
1: Do you remember the $5 foot long?
0: Oh, I longingly. I also remember the 29 cent uh, soft tacos at Taco Bell like way back. Come
1: on. Some done. Uh,
0: drinks are cheap. Like basically everything in the grocery store appears to be dirt cheap. Gasoline, uh, transportation costs look like they've gone up a little bit. But over here, man, I know the inflation numbers say that inflation in Europe is actually greater than inflation in the states right now. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't
1: feel like it's hit yet. Yeah, maybe it just hit in different areas, like things like natural gas, <laughs> like stuff that is how, how stuff runs more so than typical consumer stuff. I don't know, but that's interesting. Oh,
0: there's there's definitely some of that. So I do have real-time reporting talking about $1,000 a month energy bills through the winter. Mm, um, that was yeah. crazy. So there's all in all is going on, but it's funny to be on the other side of the pond and in a way feel like the U.S. has gotten, I don't know, hit harder on the inflation bug. Um, it's totally anecdotal. Like there's no real data here, but the real life experiences are fun. And I, I've been surprised by how cheap things feel.
1: Yeah, I felt the same way when I was in Portugal a couple of months ago. Very similar feeling that it, it feels like going back, I don't know seven or eight years in the u.s price wise
0: yeah um the other thing that's really interesting is um construction boom like crazy i mean just cranes it's like probably 35 cranes within three miles of where i'm currently sitting um so Mm. definitely Mm. housing costs have gone up and that's um feels like boom time over here
1: that's interesting all right i'm gonna uh, this is a non-investing thing I'm going to convert us to. I'm going to build off the food concept, though, and talk about Korean food, because I found I like this, this post to be really interesting. This is the, the Hustle, which we talked about before. I think we used to hit on some Hustle articles maybe like a year or so ago, but it's been a minute. The Hustle put out this piece about South Korea. I'm gonna, I'm, when I mention Korea in the next few minutes, I'm talking about South Korea specifically, how South Korea invested in its global brand via food over the last about 15 years. So back in 2002, The Economist coined this term gastro-diplomacy, which is how do you use your food to influence your own brand and perception around the world? In the late 2000s, Korea was doing some awesome stuff. They was like, look, we got Samsung, right? We got all sorts of that, we got Hyundai. So they, they said, we, we push a lot of our own culture out into the world, but it's not recognized. Japan is cannibalizing what we're doing. And in fact, there's this, I don't know how you pronounce this, but it's the Ann Holt GFK Roper nations brand index, something like that. This is an indicator of a country's popularity for investment and travel. And Korea was ranked 33rd out of the 50 countries back in 2009. And so they said, we got to change this. And the president launched a $40 million global food campaign. I would not have thought about using food in this way.
0: No. So that piece is so brilliant and Um, I only got to skim this article, but this is brilliant beyond all regard. And the return on investment here is absolutely insane. Like, it's so smart. I think, was it this article or a different one I consumed that talks about Thailand, too? And the reason there's so many Thai restaurants in the U.S. is because the government will back um, some pretty large loan for any Thai family that wants to head to the U.S. and kick in start off a restaurant it's part of the
1: branding initiative yeah making it a lot easier it was it was mentioned in here it could have been you might have seen that somewhere else too but it was mentioned in here and it's been so again like i said about 15 years from a ranking perspective south korea has gone from that 33rd mark up to 23rd which is that's a sizable movement and you also get things it's here's the, the part that kind of got to me because there are like a number of non-food residuals that come out of this so korean beauty products are much more prevalent now. You get like Squid Game, right? The popular Netflix show. You get Parasite winning Academy Awards, that movie. You get BTS, right? K-pop takes over the world. And so Korea starts to hit on a number of factors and like perception-wise around the world. And there was this poll in 2018, according to this this post, that said 88% of US residents were satisfied with Korean food, but only 63% of them realized it was Korean. And that's part of what they're trying to fight against here, too, is you may love that Samsung TV, but do you realize that that's a Korean television, right? Like they, they want to make sure that you recognize Korea. So still got some work to do, but I thought it was really fascinating. Like the one, the ingenuity to go about there, like have a kimchi onslaught upon the world. And then two, it's having an impact.
0: Such an amazing concept. Uh, forced language here, but I feel like Food is the gateway drug to recognition, to travel, yeah. to all yeah. those things. Like, How often have you been like, oh, I really like this aspect of someone's culture, and how often is that tied to food, and then that opens you up to other ideas and yeah. the potential to be more comfortable with like their religions, their whatever it Absolute. is. Um, I Absolute. just thought this was brilliant. I don't know how the hustle came up with this idea even, but... I love that they covered it.
1: They they're pretty creative in what they do, and what you just said is true. Even if you look within the U.S., right, like when folks are like, "Oh, we're going to Kansas City," they think about barbecue. Like that—that's automatically what starts to kick in, and it does make people start to you the perception of the place that you're going to changes, better or worse. Right. I Go mean, well,
0: that. the last piece on this is kind of like I think about stereotypes, and mm-hmm. I mean, we can bring it back to investing, but stereotypes um, are sometimes good, sometimes bad the stereotypes become pr and that public relations like if you're aware of the stereotypes that are in place and you can craft them and help tell a story around that yep it's it's just huge so i don't know why to be honest the us isn't doing something like this and it's probably cuz we tend to be arrogant but <laughs> <laughs> it's a great outreach i i hope more countries recognize the power that could be made here with fairly limited investment uh, yeah. to improve their brand yeah. throughout the world. I'm going to have to hit the road here shortly. Anything else in your fishbowl?
1: The last thing I got back on the investing front is to mention something you sent over to me, which was the survey of showing by age group how people feel like they can manage their investments relative to an institution or an investment professional. Oh, I loved this one. This survey, and I don't know who was behind the survey, because there was I couldn't find a link to the the survey itself. So I'll just talk to the charts. But I would love to give credit where credit's due. It was at least put out by Michael Fink. So they asked 2,500 people. It seems like three questions, or maybe those two questions, and then they they kind of put the two together. So one is like, how much do you feel like you can manage your do you feel like you can manage your investments more effectively in an institution or investment professional? And it was under, the age categories are under 35, 35 to 45, and then each up by 10 until you get to 75 plus. And it is just negatively correlative. As the older that you get, exponentially, you feel like you can manage your investments less effectively than institutional or investment professional. So for people under 35, 66% of them said that they feel like they can manage their own investments. So there's that then what gets even more interesting the second i don't know if it was a question but second category that the breakdown they had is they tested investment literacy so this is a this is a bit different than the financial literacy we talked about last week i don't know exactly what the questions are but they they said a couple examples are like do you understand diversification do you know what a roth ira was those are a couple examples they gave and again the correlation (laughs) the correlation is the exact opposite (laughs) of the last one so here under 35 years old, 38% of people were investment literate. Can I put those two things together for you for a sec? Please. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's yeah. fascinating. If it, Once they uh, broke down the investment literacy, they, they broke it into four, I guess it's five different levels. So there's zero is like not investment literate and a, a score of four. So zero, one, two, three, four. A score of four means that you are the most investment literate. And if you, if you look at how investment literate is, someone is versus how much they believe that they can invest better than an investment professional, you get what you'd expect based on the other answers we have. So 75% of the people that were in the zero investment literate category <laughs> said that they feel they can manage their money best on their own. This is Dunning-Kruger gone wild up in here. It, it really
0: is. I know we've been teasing a premium episode, but this is one of the things I wanna do a deep dive on on the premium episode. Um, You and I are both really odd ducks in that we think that we can beat um, index funds and we have a track record of beating index funds, right? But there's even more to it than that because sometimes spending all that time and energy to research exactly what you're gonna buy, even if you think you can beat the index funds, ends up being counterproductive in a sense that you, it requires a lot of thought to actually buy the investments that you want to make. Yeah. It's not a thoughtless, I can buy every two weeks or whatever. So in some cases, I think even if you're in that rare camp that you and I both feel like we are, that doesn't necessarily mean that you end up with more money at the end of 40 years because it, when you place that money, it becomes another part of the equation that's hard to pull off exactly Um, there's just a lot going on here but i would say the main thing is just look at these charts regardless of what age you are right if you're 20 or 60 just look at these charts because they tell such an incredible story if you can follow the trend like if you're fairly numerate and you understand exactly what's happening here it's a fascinating incredibly well
1: uh done piece of work so fascinating i love it i just loved it thanks for sending that over i know you gotta run man. So short episode today but i'm glad we got to talk i got to get my own like investment juju out there with you so thank you for for making the time in the pub this is fun i hope the audio was
0: good enough we'll, we'll call it uh yeah and i'll see you next
1: week buddy thanks everybody